welcome to episode 322 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I am Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Episode 322. When did that happen? I don't know. Sometime in the last, what is that, six years? Yeah, something like that. Sometimes it seems like it takes us so long to advance the episodes, and then other times I say the words, and when they come out of my mouth, they sound so strange and so foreign. But here we are, and we're in the depths of a conversation about corporate worship and today on this episode, we're going to be talking about the public reading and preaching of the word, which again, I, I love that we're in some ways coming back to things that we have kind of specific episodes for, but we're talking about them in a slightly different context. And I think this is going to be another one of those conversations that I am really looking forward to. But of course, let's take a pause real quick before we get there. We got to affirm some things. We got to deny some things. Let's again start with the affirmations and then we'll just go all negative because we're going to climb back up onto the zenith of this great topic by talking about God's word and the preaching of that word. So we know that we'll end on a high spot. So let's start with another high spot. What are you affirming with? Well, it is midwinter, no reason. And it feels like we've been particularly festive this year, a little more than (laughs) usual. So in that light, I'm just affirming the incarnation. Uh, I know like this time of year, sometimes reformed people get a little weird about talking about the incarnation in December. And sometimes, and we might even talk about some of this today, um, they get a little weird about like pastors who choose to preach out of like the beginning of Matthew or the beginning of Luke at this time of year. Uh, which I think is kind of silly. I don't think that that's necessary to to get all weirded out about preaching the scriptures, uh, a particular part of the scriptures, a particular time of year. But right. we're always affirming the incarnation on this show. But I think this time of year, it makes sense to spend a little bit of extra time pondering the incarnation um, just because. Yeah. I don't have any much more to add to that. It's just I'm affirming the incarnation. That's great because we spend a lot of time sometimes tongue-in-cheek talking about reform principles of all kinds of things, worship, podcasting, which is to say, of course, you want to keep those regular rhythms because God has given them to us and to move away from them or depart from them unnecessarily to kind of come into some weird concentration of an idea or a concept or topic just because we have some kind of man-made calendar. We do push against that quite a bit, but I like this because kind of the other way around, which is to say in the opposite direction, there's no bad time to hear the word preached about the word coming to dwell among us and to lead in a little bit this time of year, because it's on people's minds. Even as we've said, those who are unbelievers to be refreshed in that, to rehearse it in your own life, to hear that good full gospel message come into your ears and then hopefully to seep into your heart. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, of course we should be doing that also in June and July and February and any other time of the year. But there's also nothing wrong with just saying, isn't this good news? And I want to sit in this for a bit. I love that. Yeah. And I would add, you know, in our our last little series within a series, uh, we talked a little bit about the role of the church in reference to the culture. And Jesse and I both landed, I think, in our own ways, not exactly the same spot, but we landed (laughs) in in a spot where the church has a prophetic voice to speak to the culture. So the church doesn't doesn't necessarily amalgamate to the culture. The church is not totally disconnected from the culture, but the church has a prophetic role in speaking to the culture. 
And right now, this time of year, the culture is all about talking about Jesus, but usually getting it really, really wrong. So I think for those pastors who do choose to do the quote unquote Christmas sermons or the Advent series, I think, you know, we got to be careful with the church calendar and it's, it's wise for us to be aware of those things. But there's also a place this time of year, or we could do this in the spring about the resurrection, or we could do this other times of the year where there's a particular focus on on things about Christianity, the culture is going to get it wrong. They're going to get the incarnation wrong. They're going to get the purpose of Christmas wrong. Um, you know, there's all sorts. This is the time of year where like the Discovery Channel loves to do weird exposés about like the Gnostic Gospels and stuff. Um, we have a role and pastors have a role to speak truth, either in direct response to those things, which I think is appropriate, or in sort of this roundabout response where instead of confronting it, we just speak the truth on the same same general topic that the culture is speaking a lie. So I want to affirm the incarnation, especially this time of year, uh, the, the union of the human nature being assumed into the divine person. Uh, the hypostatic union is just a really beautiful uh, mystery of the Christian religion that without without the hypostatic union, without the incarnation, we don't have a Christian religion. So right. when you hear people that are denying this and they're talking about Jesus just being a, a unique man, or we have, you know, canonic Christology where God stops being God, all of those things are just lies. And this time of year is a time for us to speak the truth. And there's so many pastors who are preaching this message, who are bringing it to the forefront in a way that's, I would say, not like particularly kitsch or corny. So there is a way in which you can kind of find yourself in this rut of going back to the same passages year after year and keeping it kind of surface level. One of the things I've really appreciated is in my own local congregation, the pastor has been preaching through a four-part series that's Christ as Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King. And what I really appreciate is he's drawing in, as you said, I think in a very perfect way, this general fascination this time of year with things around the major and the Christ child. But at the same time, he's not pulling away again from the full counsel of God in addressing Christ as Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King. I've been so blessed by this whole series because it really has been about the full life of Jesus. So that it doesn't just get to this point of saying, well, Jesus is the answer, but it says, here's the question you ought to be asking, which he does answer. So that fourfold gospel has been really great. And I think that is, is it a Christmas message? Sure, I guess. Is it a message for every day? Absolutely. So it's really nice to have a little bit of both. But I guess to your point, it's it's okay to be like, be chill. Yeah. Be chill and receive. Receive these this good news right now. It's okay. Yeah. You don't have to bring an axe to chop down the Christmas tree that they have in the (laughs) Marathex. You can let it go. It's totally fine to just let it go. You can call it a monument of idolatry if you want, but just just be chill. Even Zwingli was like, let's just slow down with all the smashing of statues. <laughs> so let's just slow down with all the smashing of Christmas trees. <laughs> I think that was after, though, he had smashed a bunch of stuff. He was That's like, guys, give me, let me just take a breather. <laughs> He's like, just slow down because I'm tired. But give me a minute. We'll be back to the smashing. <laughs> exactly. By the way, I'm going to steal that. Another great hardcore band name I think it just came up with is Trees in the Narthex. That Trees sounds like an amazing yes. band name. Yeah. Well, what about you? What are you affirming? I absolutely love it. Uh, once again, I feel a little flat-footed because yours is really great, really theological, really top shelf. And it's not that mine is the exact opposite uh, because <laughs> that would be like affirming Satan, I think, in some weird way. It's not that. It's just very, very, very different. I uh, kind of wished we had done you know, some kind of memorandum 
on this one. But <laughs> this is something that came across my desk and I found super interesting. It's just really not as great as the incarnation. So with that said, I'm affirming a little tutorial online. You can search for it. It's called The Evolution of Trust. And this is a little bit nerdy. Actually, it's a super lot nerdy. So there's this study of mathematical models about strategic interactions among rational agents. It's called game theory. I mean, in layman's terms, we talked about this before, I think, in this, on this podcast. Yeah. And, you know, the layman's explanation of this is it's basically about when you're making a strategic decision, there are other people involved, not just the decision you're going to make, but your decision in light of somebody else's decision, how they might react the first time or how they might react in subsequent to your decision. And then, of course, how that influences your decision, which influences their decision back and forth. And it's a, actually this is we encounter this all the time in all kinds of things that we're doing. It's not even antagonistic. Just that as you interact with people, there's always this process of how you're strategizing and moving through something, either working as a team or working individually. So I found this little tutorial, The Evolution of Trust Online. It's super fun. It's like a game style. The mathematics is all in there, but it's explained in such a way that I think makes a lot of sense. So if you've ever been the kind of person that's like, you know what? I hear about John Nash was famous with this, right? Was that, uh, what's that movie? Beautiful Mind? Mm -hmm. Is that the one? Yeah. yeah so with Russell Crowe. Yeah, so the Nash equilibrium is perhaps the most famous permutation of game theory. But if you've thought, you know what, it's just gone on for too long. I'm too old now. I'm too embarrassed to ask what game theory is. And it sounds <laughs> like it's too crazy. It's really not. Go So go search out the evolution of trust. It's, it's a little game, actually, you get to play. And it's super fun. And it explains in the end what happens and why the things happen. I don't want to spoil it. And it gives you some sense of like, oh my goodness, okay, this is what we're talking about when you want to hear things like the prisoner's dilemma or Nash equilibrium or just game theory. So go go check it out. It's a super nerdy corner of the internet, but I think it's worth it if you got maybe 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh game theory is an interesting concept and it has a lot of interesting applications um, to just about anything that you do. So I would, I would definitely check this out. I'll check it out. I, I loaded the website and then it had a bunch of like music. So I had to shut it off because <laughs> I'm recording a podcast right now. Uh, but also just, we've affirmed this book before you, there's a book called algorithms to live by, yes. which is super nerdy. And there's a really, really good chapter in there that talks all about game theory and how to sort of leverage game theory, which in itself is a form of game theory. Leveraging game theory is an application of game theory, uh, but leveraging game theory to help you make decisions and to structure your life to bring about certain kinds of effects. Um, so check it out, check that out too, but that's a really good, I'm going to have to check out that game. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. If you really want to go down the rabbit trail, just in your own mind, as you ruminate about this would be to think about, these are some of the things I consider when I think about game theory is we know that of course, in the human condition, their behavioral biases, their emotional biases, I would really quickly relegate those under the category of the fall. And yet there's also something just about interaction that probably is not of course, relative to the fall, but is present in game theory. So the question is how much of, how much of, how much of anything is in there? Does that make sense? Yeah. Like yep. there's, so theologically, there's a lot to think about here and to understand how we make decisions and actually to understand where biases might come into play is in some ways to get in touch with your total depravity as it impacts your decision-making, but also to appreciate the way in which God made us to be yes. rational creatures in which we're processing all this information that we're receiving all the time. And part of that processing is what other people are doing as well and trying to understand them better. So I think there's a lot to be said here, the least of which is that I always, when I come away from these theories, and they are theories, of course, think about God understands this all completely. There's no mystery to him here. 
that his knowledge is so much higher. And yet here we are, we award people these grandiose prizes that are supposed to be the zenith again of their you know human intellectual achievement for something like this. And yet all we can say is it's a theory and yet we still hardly understand it. And so I just think, well, praise the Lord that we have such a powerful, mighty, omniscient, and knowledgeable God who transcends all these things. Yeah, yeah. So, speaking of game theory, yeah. we set up our show with certain structures that lead us to denials now, and that's well game theory. Well done. That was so. that was that was real hot. It came in real hot in that one, and I <laughs> and I love it, especially because usually I'm the one because we I started it that I say to you, hey. What do you deny again? So do you see how, listen, loved ones, do you see the game theory happening right there? It's Tony true. was working it hard. It's true. Well, okay, I'm, so what are you denying against? <laughs> I'm denying something. It's a shallow, it's sort of a shallow denial, but also not. Uh, we had a pretty big winter storm yesterday and we lost power at about 3.30 in the morning and it was not restored until maybe like 2.30 in the afternoon. And man, I, I maybe I, maybe instead of denying power outages, I'm just affirming electricity but I'm denying power outages because it was a rough, <laughs> it was a rough like 12 hours. Like we had, we didn't realize how little food we had that could be eaten without like without electric preparation of some sort. Um, you know, we live, we have a, a, we have an oil burner, but the burner is controlled by an electric thermostat system. So you like, you don't have heat. We have an electric artesian well for the, the church property. So we didn't like, couldn't even flush the toilets without running out of water. And there's no way to replenish it. So it's it's amazing to me how much uh, how much we depend on electricity. So I'm just denying power outages. Yeah, that's fair. It, they're especially scary if you live in an area where it gets cold. Yeah, and that's of course more than just an inconvenience. It actually, becomes a danger. And for if it's particularly cold for any length of time, you don't have to worry just about your personal property right. yourself, but also the house as well. So yeah. p- people maybe who live in warmer climates don't often think about the fact that you have to worry about what's going to happen to my pipes and. If you've ever had a pipe burst. Oh man, it's bad news. Yeah. That's horrific. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. That that's like just burn the house down and get the insurance money kind of <laughs> kind of stuff. Like hope hope that the water hits an electrical cord, although it wouldn't matter because the power was out. So never that's mind. exactly right. Yeah. If there's anyone pay- from the uh I don't know, whatever bureau investigates arson, I, I have not burned anything down. That was entirely a joke. I'm not advocating arson. That was inappropriate. I apologize. Yes, I'll do yeah. the proper proper penance of some sort. That's uh, definitely kind of ironic and a rough joke for somebody with your last name. It's true. That's true. <laughs> it is true. Although, uh, speaking of my last name, yes. uh, I was reading, we have this little uh, Christian biographies book uh, by Simon Edekar, uh about Athanasius. And there's this really funny uh, incident in church history. And, and, when you're talking about like the fourth and fifth century, it's hard hard to know like what's actually real and what's not. The the more outlandish it sounds, the, the more likely it is totally fabricated. But Athanasius, his opponents at one point uh, brought to the emperor that Athanasius had murdered a guy named uh, I'll share his name later. But they, he had murdered a guy, and they brought a severed hand as proof that they had murdered this dude. And yeah, there's no DNA testing, of course, no fingerprints. So Athanasius shows up at his trial with a, a surprise guest witness and he pulls back the the cowl on the guy and it's the dude they had accused him of murdering. And then he put both his hands forward and he had both his hands. So the emperor was like, uh, guys, whose hand did you cut off? So And the guy's name was Arsenius. So there's a special, 
special place in my heart for this random dude who didn't get murdered or have his hand cut off. Wow. That's a pretty good story, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, that's in a children's book? Yeah, that's true. It is in a children's book. They talk about it. They don't show any like hands being cut hands? off. Yeah, there's no there's no like severed hands. <laughs> I thought it was maybe one of those books that's got the alphabet. It's like S is for severed hand. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. But yeah. what about you now? What are you denying, Jesse? That's great. Okay, so I'm I got a double down. I'm tripling down now. So I decided again that in December, at least until we meet the 25th, I was going to go all in on this advent calendar of denials. And I thought we have so many talented listeners. What we need, or at least I need, I'm not sure if you want to get in on this or not, is for somebody to construct a denial advent calendar that's a giant X. And then each of the legs of the X is a little door <laughs> that you'd open up each week it's true. with a particular denial. So just to give a quick uh, refresher, if you've just coming into this and said, oh my goodness, I want to open up all four of the doors. And there were three that preceded this one. So I think four weeks ago, I denied against casual singing of all these great worship courses and hymns and songs that we have this time of year that are really expressive of the incarnation to not do so in a kind of a passive way. And then after that, we talked about denying against Christmas as an appeal when it's actually an announcement, and that being the gospel good news, which led us into the third window to open, which was this idea that there's sometimes a fragmented perspective put forward of the incarnation that's so divorced from the rest of who Christ was and what he came to accomplish that people are kind of left thinking, well, that's just a great story about the birth of a child, but what does that have to do with anything? And so finally, the last one, let's open up the last door. So this is where we need like a sound effect, you know, like yeah, some kind of- Like, like try we're distilling theology. Yes, exactly. We could try to do like a creaky door, but I realized that would just sound like a horror movie, which is really not the effect that I, <laughs> uh, that I want. Like there's something coming out of this calendar to get you. But here's what I'm dying against today. And this is the last iteration or the final presentation of the calendar. And that is I'm denying against inadvertently leaving Jesus out of your gift giving. What I mean by that is not that you ought to buy a gift for Jesus, but that, at least for myself, I sometimes forget that he is the reason, especially among Christians, that we give gifts to each other. And that there's this idea you can get caught up in reciprocity and perhaps rules and all those things are fine, I think, in so much as they help maybe provide structure for us. But we really need to check our attitudes that the generosity and the reason why we're seeking out all these options is not actually just to appreciate a person, but to appreciate that person by honoring Jesus as well. That, that gift giving is a manifestation, or it should be at least, of an internal attitude that is wholeheartedly grateful for God giving us a Savior. And while that might even sound cliche, I just find that it's too easy to get swept up in all the trappings of gift giving as if there's some conscription for the holiday because this is what man has decided to do. And we ought to redeem that and flip it on its head and say, even in my heart, I'm going to make sure that the reason I'm giving a gift even as I pick that out to spend time making it or purchase it is because I want to honor the savior in being generous and showing love to those around me in a particular way, but it always coming back to Jesus. So I'm denying against leaving Jesus out of our gift giving. Wow. I don't know that I have anything to add to that. That's if my, uh, my affirmation was all theological and deep and yours was flat footed, as you called it. I feel like my denial is flat footed 
and yours was <laughs> deep. So <laughs> the the X calendar that you're talking about is actually a chiasm, which our yes. denials are also a chiasm. Today. Yes. Yes. See, I'm telling you, there's lots of opportunity here. We've had lots of good ideas in this show. I'd like to put this one yes. in that mix, but yeah, I think there's, I think it's helpful. I'm discovering this year. I kind of like this idea in my own life because as I've been sharing these with our listeners and with you, I've also been processing them throughout the week and thinking about, again, mainly these are denials against me. They're yeah. the things that I'm quickly and easily falling into this time of year that somehow just wrap my brain up in a distraction instead of really getting to the center of the heart. And I'm not saying that this is a plea to try to keep Christ in Christmas. What I'm just saying is to tr keep Christ in the Christian. Yeah. And so that as we go through this time of year, that we would just work dutifully to remain connected to our Savior and to what is supposedly being represented here. But if it's not represented in the world, we don't necessarily need to worry about that. But if it's not represented among us, the brethren and the sister, right. then we do have to worry about that because that is something that is well within our control. And as we've said before, there's no wrong time to celebrate the incarnation. It's a bit like, let's say you're going over to somebody's house for dinner, they invite you for dinner. And on the way over there, you say to your spouse, you know what? I could really go for a hamburger tonight. And you get there and they're like, we're serving hamburgers. You, I mean, you should just lean into that and enjoy that. Yeah. appreciate that. That's a bit like how I feel about this time of year. It's like, we always want to celebrate and appreciate and worship Jesus Christ in his coming and condescension. So why not? It just so happens that the world is serving that up for us, at least in some degree. And so I think we ought to be the ones at least just championing that, but especially in our own ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on some level, gift giving is always out of our abundance, right? Generosity comes out of our abundance. That doesn't right. mean you can't be generous if you if you don't have a surplus, but it's given out of abundance. And what is our abundance from if not from God? So so on one level, if we if we ignore gift giving as a Christian practice, and that is we make it entirely a secular practice, in a lot of ways that actually is a lack of gratitude for the, the blessings right. that God has given us. And I think that's kind of the point of gift giving at Christmas time is it's a way to show our gratitude to God first and foremost for his many blessings, especially the blessing of Christ Jesus in the manger. And, and then consequently his entire life and everything that comes following that. But if we, if we don't make that explicit, it's like so many other things we've talked about recently. You can have something that is good and proper to do, but unless you explicitly attach Christian messaging to it, it's not a Christian thing. So in order for our gift giving at Christmas to be a Christian practice, we need to find a way, not in some contrived sense, but we need to attach Christianity to that practice. And I think the logical, natural conclusion is we give out of our abundance, which comes only from God. Right. Yeah. Right. That's yeah, stuff. that's solid. That's what I'm saying. I think it's helpful to examine ourselves. And I think I've been enjoying the process of trying to do that, even in just small ways as I move through this little season that we have. So there you go. That's the, the, the denial calendar for this year. I'm sure I'll dust it off, bring it back up, hang it up again next year. And we'll just see what we open up. How about that? It's true. It's true. Yeah. I also just want to point out that Jesse's denials over this Advent season have more planning involved than most of our episodes do <laughs> in total. So that's like the most planned part of our show in the last six years is Jesse's denial Advent calendar. Yeah. I love it. Somebody it's needs true. to go ahead and make that happen on Etsy or yeah. somebody's just 
take it. You have full liberty and license. Go ahead and develop yep. it. I would love to see that. I think that would be a fun thing. Honestly, the more I thought about that this week, I thought, of course, I'm joking to some extent. And yet I thought, what would happen if a if such a thing exists? So let's say you could go out and it's like the anti-advent calendar, only in the sense that the advent calendar, of course, is really meant to stimulate and celebrate this waiting, this longing and to build anticipation and day by day to bring you and usher you into that great joy that's about to come. What if there was some company, again, a reformed theological company that produced an advent calendar of denials that purposely <laughs> gave you things like warnings of things to kind of keep you on track in this season instead? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm see I'm I'm picturing an anti-advent calendar where like every time you open a door, like John Knox jumps out and slaps you in the face. <laughs> he like jumps out and smacks you in the head with a broadsword and is like, don't don't make holy days. I mean, or maybe like 10 of those days are just the 10 commandments. And you're just like, <laughs> oh man, like, you know, it's just like, have you broken this one? And you're like, yeah. And you have to like respond yes or no. You know what I mean? Like maybe that's part of it, but that still, that's kind of an advent calendar then. Yeah. Because again, I love that run up to, we need this great savior. Yes. And again, not just one who comes and dies for the sake of some kind of sacrifice that's nebulous, but has fulfilled the law in all its perfection. Yeah. A la episode that we talked about like three weeks ago. So it's true. Yeah. So speaking about open up doors, let's open up this door and just walk right nice. through. Nice. I'm so impressed by that segue. So oh, we're in this, uh, we're in this little mini series of series here. Uh, and we're talking about corporate worship. And so last week we talked about singing Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and what that means. And a little bit about what we think it doesn't mean. This week, we're going to talk about the public reading and preaching of the word. So we did, we're going to spend most of our time, I think, talking about the public reading of the word, because we did an entire series working through reform preaching by Joel Beakey, which I, I didn't even mean to, but I just looked over at my shelf and it's sitting right there staring at me. Um, so go back and listen to those because we unpacked reformed preaching using Joel Beakey's book for, I don't know, it was like 26 episodes. It was a really long series. But the... Reformed tradition has drawn a distinction between the preaching of the word and just the public reading of the word. And of course, different, different parts of the Reformed tradition understand the authority intrinsic in the public reading of the word differently than others. So some um, would affirm that only ordained ministers can read scripture from the, the pulpit. Others would be a little bit more relaxed on that. Um, but I want to read from the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith here, chapter 21. This is where most of this little series on corporate worship is going to come from, is from the different categories that are called out in uh, Westminster 21. And so section five says, the reading of the scripture with godly fear, the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the word in obedience unto God with understanding faith and reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, and also the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ are all parts in the ordinary religious worship of God, besides religious oaths, vows, solemn fastings, and thanksgivings upon special occasions, which are in their several times and seasons to be used in a holy religious manner. So this, this part of the, the section that we're talking about is just that first part, the reading of the scriptures with godly fear, and then the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the word in obedience unto God. That's what we're talking about today is that little part of that paragraph. And like I said, we've talked a lot about preaching and about what reform preaching is and what it means, but we haven't talked so much about why it is that at a, a reformed service, 
uh, there's a substantial part of the service that is scripture reading, whether that's just the public reading of the entire passage that's being preached on, or whether there's other passages that are read. Some Reformed services will have an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading in addition to whatever is being um whatever's being preached on and they'll read that whole passage. Right. I've seen some where they will they will read the entire chapter of whatever passage is being preached. Um not just not just in sort of a, like here's the context kind of a way, but that's just what they do. They read that entire chapter because the reading of God's word publicly is important and substantial. And I think that's something that at a lot of evangelical churches, if you were to compare and contrast the two, most of the time the scripture is presented throughout the sermon, but there's not usually a, a part of the service where they stop and read a large portion of scripture. Even in an expository preaching context, most evangelical churches don't have a scripture reading prior to the, the message. They just read the scripture as part of the sermon. But the Reformed tradition has drawn this distinction between the two that I think is interesting to sort of probe a little bit. Yeah, that's why I'm glad we're talking about it in this particular context. And to anticipate just somewhat, I'm going to make the argument that the reason why we pair these together, the reason why the divines also in particular kind of put these in a place that's tightly coupled is because, at least in my theory, that biblical theology of corporate prayer and the reading of the scriptures is put together in this way. What they have in common is because God's people are called to submit our entire lives, which includes two things. One, the words that are being said on our behalf when we're gathered together together, and two, the words that we are hearing as well. And so we, in both cases, need, as it were, a covenantal mediator. So I like talking about the reading of scripture in this way, because one, it's it's almost like this is low-hanging fruit for us, isn't it? It's almost like too easy because yeah. if you go into the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, you're just going to find this example of this very thing happening so ubiquitous. It's really beyond debate that what God calls his people to do when they gather together, especially on the Lord's Day, is to have the scripture read publicly. And we're differentiating that, like you said, and I like this, from like somebody preaching it to you. This is just somebody opens up the scriptures. Right reads the scriptures, and ideally reads the full breadth and scope of whatever is going to be unpacked that day. And in fact, you can't do, it's it's a bit like you can't unpack a suitcase that hasn't been packed. So everything that proceeds out of the service should come first from the scriptures itself. In other words, right. you don't have anything to preach about if you haven't had a passage put before you and had it read within your hearing so that you can see and hear and look at the text that's in front of you. So to me, at the center of like every Christian worship experience must be the Word of God. And we as believers, we place a great priority on that to the extent that I think we let it speak itself as we read it out, right. unencumbered in our times of worship together. I've heard people say that an honest evaluation for all believers would be to compare the amount of singing to the amount of time God's Word is actually read in a weekly worship service. I'm not sure it's fair, yeah. but I've at least heard that challenge. And of course, the emphasis behind that just is, does the, just the actual audio like proclamation of the scriptures by simple reading, does it have a prominent place? Does, do you give it time so that you don't just fly past what you think is familiar? Or in, like you said, Tony, like just presume that we're just going to jump right into a sermon and I'll reference everything you need to know in proof text as we go through it. So there's something beautiful about this. Timothy is on about this when he appoints to the public reading of scripture. 
in his own book. You know, there's just no doubt that God's people won from the beginning of the scriptures themselves first either lacked the resources or the capacity, or of course, were not even literate. So there was nothing that they could do to replace, of course, hearing the scriptures uninterrupted on the Lord's day. There was just nothing that compared to that. And so I think what bothers me when we come to a place where people say, well, listen, we do it slightly different way, or yes, it's there, but not in the way that you're describing it, is there's just nothing that can replace God's word, right? Nothing can compete with God's word. So if we need to give it the kind of priority, but I fear that sometimes when people say they're giving it the priority, they mean, well, of course, my sermon has plenty of scripture in it. I'm going to pull scriptures in from all over the place. Like you're going to get the full breath and scope. This is because we were just talking before the podcast and it sounded like we should have been recording, but you were saying again, like God always works through the simple means, through normal, ordinary means. It's here's the scripture, let it be read, let it out. And I think that is something that is undervalued because it seems like when I hear people say, we've got to do something around it, what I'm hearing is, well, there is competition with God's word. There's right. something better that I can do with it to make it more meaningful and impactful. I can't just read it because people might not understand it. Or I can't just read it because they might not really get the points that I want to deliver to them. But I think what we're saying here is let God take care of that because we're standing on his promise when we say, let the scripture be read out loud. Yeah. Yeah. And and just, you know, to be clear, obviously preaching is important. Like if anything, it's it's the most important part of the Lord's Day service is the the preaching and the exposition of God's word by God's appointed servant who is the pastor of the church. Right. But there is an element of just the straight reading of the scripture that is incredibly valuable to the congregation. And here here's a here's an example and this was something that um really impacted me. So so I've shared before there was a there was a brief time before I moved to Boston, that I was actually considering joining the Roman Catholic Church. And one of the things that actually, um, obviously it didn't convince me, but it was an important part of the conversation, was when I was talking with Catholics and I said, well, I'm, I'm just really committed to the scripture. They threw back at me, well, do you realize that the average Roman Catholic here's more scripture read from the pulpit. I don't think they call it a pulpit usually in a Roman Catholic church, but uh, uh, the average Roman Catholic hears more scripture read out loud from the front of the room on the Lord's day than the average evangelical does. And I, I thought a lot about that and I found it to be true. In my my evangelical church, which was sort of Lutheran flavored, but not really a Lutheran church, it was very uncommon Um, for us to read or to even present sizable portions of the scripture in, in raw form, kind of undiluted or unexplained. What it almost always was, was, all right, turn to your Bibles. We're going to put this on the screen and then the pastor is going to talk about it. And they might read portions of the scripture through the course of their sermon or more commonly in evangelical churches, they may kind of sprinkle Sir, you know, scripture passages and scripture references on top of their topical sermon to explain, you know, support what they're saying. But the scripture was very rarely made the central part. And I'm speaking out of my own experience. I'm sure there are evangelical churches that do a good job of this. For sure. But um, the the scripture was very rarely the central feature of the 
presentation, if you want to call it that. It wasn't wasn't usually the central part of it. It was usually the sermon as crafted by the pastor was the central feature of of the worship service. Um, if you take apart, take the music out. The music was almost always kind of like the biggest piece of the service. That really convicted me. If we as Protestants hold hold the fact that the scripture is the very inspired word of God, it comes from God, it is breathed out by God, then why wouldn't we want it to be read frequently out loud in, in there? And that, that's the argument when you look in the Bible and it talks about the public reading of the word, right? I'm thinking of like um, in Ezra, right? When they, when they come right. back to the, to, to the promised land, they come back to Jerusalem and their Nehemiah focuses more on the physical reconstruction of Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the wall, the re, you know, starting to rebuild the temple complex. Ezra focuses more on the spiritual rebuilding of God's people when they come back in. And there's this, this sequence and it's really striking where the people stand all day. They stand all day and they listen to the law being read. Right. So the, the parts of scripture that we stall out in, in our Bible reading plans, right. They get to Leviticus, they're standing, listening to someone read it out loud. And there are people positioned throughout the, con throughout the congregation, listening to it, who are explaining it as it goes. That's fine. That's good. There's an, there's a place to explain and exposit the word. We're not denying that in any sense, but the central feature of that passage is not the explanation of the word that's going on. It's right. just the straight verbal reading of God's law. And it is that verbal reading of God's law that leads the people to basically say like, what, what do we need to do about this? They reaffirm their covenant commitment, not because of Ezra's amazing sermon. We don't actually see that Ezra preaches a sermon, but because of the simple, straightforward reading of the word publicly, it cuts the people to the quick to kind of borrow language from Acts. And they basically say, all right, well, what do we do to renew our covenant here? Just because God's, read, God's word was read publicly. And I, I can think of times, you know, my my role in the service at my current church is mostly kind of, uh, we, we call it worship leader, but it's really kind of like the person who moves the service along. It's almost like the MC of the service, at least in the very beginning of the service. And I get to read what we call the meditation. So our service, we have a meditation passage that ties into the theme of the service. That's read um, prior to the call to worship. And it is a chance for people to center themselves and focus on the word of God. And it calls their attention to what the service is going to be about. And there are times where I look at that meditation and I read it. And that, that right there is just as powerful for me reading through that slowly and intentionally as someone who's reading out loud. I really have to think through the passage and understand the grammar of the passage and where the commas are and the periods are and, and which verses seem to associate with others. I have to understand that passage in order to read it out loud. Sometimes that is just as impacting to me and just as important in my own spiritual life as the sermon itself is. Um, not to not to underplay or to diminish the, the role and importance of the sermon. That's very important in the life of a Christian. But the public reading of God's word, if we really believe what Isaiah says, that the word goes out and accomplishes what it intended, and it comes back and it does not come back void, that in, includes the public reading of the word. And I think far too many of our churches, we just don't we just don't do that enough. We don't do a lot of it. And of course, what is a proper sermon if it's nothing but the explanation of the reading? 
Right, exactly. And, and there's good pedigree, a pattern of a pedigree, actually, in the scriptures for that, including you know, when Jesus concluded reading from the prophet Isaiah, the synagogue in Nazareth, the scripture says, the gospels all say, all the eyes were fixed upon him in their right. anticipation of his comments. And then he spoke to them. At least that's what Luke tells us. So Jesus even provides like this expository example followed by the pattern expected in the synagogue service. And that pattern is that the scripture is read and only then and thereafter is expounded. Part of me thinks that, well, of course, God is brilliant in this, isn't he? Like there's a lot in this that's just good design for human beings. The first of which is that to hear something read in an uninterrupted fashion is to be able to see it or hear it and process it in context first. And that's true almost any document or any kind of speech. You know, we think about speeches of politicians or debates. We think about presentation of materials and how to just hear, especially among other people at the same time, is to be unified in focus and in attention on something that is important. So that by itself is brilliant. But then when we add on top of that, that beyond the natural language processing is also the supernatural, that just as you said, that in some ways, when we trust God at his word, excuse the pun, but that we do what he says, what he asks in a regulative kind of way with our worship by reading from the scriptures, because, you know, presumably you could, you could find yourself saying, listen, the real estate on the Lord's day morning is so small. And there's so many things we'd like to put into this time. We'd like to sing and there are announcements and there may be baptisms and there are other things that want to bring into the life, into the attention of the church. And it's just so easy to say, we'll cover the scripture when we get there in the sermon. But this is also trusting God at his word to say that God does perhaps the greatest thing by letting his scripture be read and by the Holy Spirit coming and bringing his knowledge and illumination and walking us into all truth by just the scripture being read. To me, in some ways, this is really not all that different than a kind of Sabbatarian view that says, I'm not going to work on the seventh day because yeah. I trust that God will take care of all things. In the same way that we turn over the service on the Lord's day to God because it does belong to him and say, this is time well spent. This is not a waste. It's not redundant. It's not unnecessary. It's not outmooted. There's nothing that we need to do to jazz up the scripture. We just want it to be read and plainly be put in people's ears as they come then into the rest of worship on that morning. And I think, you know, that sort of naturally leads to an element of this, that if we're not careful in how we talk about preaching and if we how we talk about the the reading of God's word, the public reading of God's word, we miss the the fact that this is not some um, flat presentation. Right. It is a it is a uh, it's a reading of the word that is intended to be received by the congregation. Right. And so the congregation has a role to play in the reading of God's word, and and I think. When I think of the different churches I've been in, I don't think that the church I'm in now is described by this at all. But I've been in churches in the past, even when there is a scripture reading happening, um, especially like I think sometimes in evangelical churches, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to bash on evangelical churches, and that's a word that I think is poorly defined. And so if you're a part of an a part of a church and you would consider it to be evangelical, and this doesn't describe you, I chalk that up to. Um, chalk that up to the definition of the word being blurry, not necessarily me trying to misrepresent your church, right? So in churches that um, that that don't typically have a significant portion of the service devoted to public reading of scripture, 
around this time of year, right? At like Christmas Eve services or Good Friday services or something like that, where there's a special service, there right. tends to be more scripture reading, right? That's true. So you might go to a Christmas Eve service at a church that doesn't ordinarily read a lot of scripture, and they may include a lot of scripture readings from the the first couple chapters of the gospel or from the of the gospels of Luke and Matthew or maybe something from you know Micah or or from parts of Isaiah. They'll have these scripture readings. Um even then, I think sometimes those are seen almost as like fillers or like um I don't want to bash on churches that do this too much, although I don't like the practice, but like churches that have special music for um like regularly practice special music where during the offering, they always have a section they call special music. Really, that is kind of filler. It's a filler that's used just because we don't want to pass the plate in in silence. I think some of those churches view the scripture reading in these special services almost in the same sense. Like these are ways for us to like make our service a little different. We do these scripture readings because that's not the way we normally do things. We want the service to be a certain length. And so we include scripture readings. I think we can, even in churches that do scripture readings on a regular basis, we can, we can fall into that trap. Again, I don't think this describes my current church, but I've been in churches where you have a scripture reading and that's like, it's at the beginning of the service because like people are still trickling in. So we do something that doesn't require, like if the people miss it, it's not a big deal. Or like you see people are still like playing on their phones or they're chatting with each other when they do the scripture reading. That is a, I think that's actually like a really dangerous practice for us to treat it that way. Cause this is the prophetic word of God. Like this is the Holy spirit speaking to us in the most concrete way that he does speak to us in this kind of new covenant dispensation or new covenant era. This is the way he speaks to us is through the public um, reading of the scripture. Right. And especially the preaching of the word. We, we understand as evangelicals and as reformed folks, that preaching of the word, we understand that that's really important, but the Holy spirit is no less speaking to us in the reading of God's word out loud than he is in the preaching of God's word or in our own private devotions. And I think we treat the public reading of the word, if we're not careful, as this sort of filler or sort of like gap time. We may feel more comfortable like chatting with our neighbor or checking out on our phone, or maybe maybe even something we think is really well-intentioned where we go, oh man, I want to remember this, this. So I start taking notes on my thoughts on the passage as they're reading it. But the, the, the Westminster Confession talks about the conscionable hearing of God's word. There's a lot about what that means, but it certainly means more than this. But at a minimum, what it means is pay attention to what's actually being said. Right, you can't sure. conscionably hear something if you're not hearing it. So if we're going to fulfill our obligation to conscionably hear the word of God when it is read out loud, we need to be paying attention. We need to be, we need to be focused and we need to... Taking notes is fine. I don't want to bash on that practice. If you have a thought or if you're reflecting on the scriptures, it's being read, you want to take notes, that's fine. But this is not a time for us to check out and look away from what is being done. It's a time for us to zero in on what is being said, because that's the word of God that's being spoken. And I think we don't treat it that way a lot of times. And sometimes that may be a product of the fact that we all have failed by making it too casual, like you've said. So it's this idea that it's just another element in the service. And we can add it or subtract it or mix it up a little bit if that suits what's happening on a particular day. This is why I do think to some degree, like the old methods are the 
better methods, yeah. sometimes because I think they've just been tested for a greater length of time. One of those might be just a formal liturgy. Yes. Because that structure continues to emphasize that there's something important that we do with regular rhythm, but that also elevates the importance of what we're doing here. So you know, I think no matter where you live, if there's been something that's happened that's been significant in the life of the country of which you're a citizen, when the person representing that country, a politician, a king, a queen, a, a senator, gets on and makes an announcement, everybody is wants to hear what they're about to say. Right. Everybody's concerned about that. It's funny that we don't treat the scripture exactly like that, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, you know, I think the other thing that we often don't um, realize or think about, we have the epistles of Paul in this nice little codex form, right? And, right we can put right. it on our phone. We can listen to it. Um, the word of God in the New Testament, the vast majority of it was received by New Testament Christians because it was read out loud. Exactly. So the book of Ephesians, it's not like it came to Ephesus and they they made a bunch of copies and they handed it out to everybody in Ephesus. The people came together and some someone read Paul's letter out loud. And that was how people received the word. And the reason the Roman Catholic church has a lot of scripture reading isn't because I, isn't because I think they have a, an emphasis on scripture. I think they diminish the purpose, the point of scripture, but the reason it's the reason they read so much scripture in their service is because historically that's how the church has done it because most people were not literate because the scriptures were hard to come by most of the way people heard the scriptures and and received the scriptures in sort of raw uninterpreted form was this public reading of scripture so i think it's it's really really important you know what is at the end of the book of colossians where paul says make sure you read make sure you read this letter out loud yes. Re- also read the letter i forget what the name of the church was but read read the letter that i sent to this other congregation out loud too so it's even paul within his own letters is saying read this out loud it's really important that this is right. read out loud and i know there are some who would say like the apostles didn't realize they were re- writing scripture i don't think that that's true i think they knew exactly what they were doing they were producing authoritative prophetic works they understood to be the inspired word of god and they were saying when you get this letter, read it out loud in front of the church. And I think as as Christians 2,000 years later, it's a little bit silly for us to read and think we're really putting an emphasis on the scriptures if we're going to ignore one of the most basic commands that's built into them of reading it out loud. And I, I mean, I'm, I don't want to put, I'm not trying to put churches that don't do large public readings of scripture on blast, but I, I feel like maybe the New Testament puts you on blast a little bit. I'm trying to be gentle in that because I understand there's a variety of understandings, but I fail to see in a lot of cases how we miss that, how, how churches miss this element of it, this important part of it. When the New Testament itself in many places just has straight up commands, read this out loud, read the scriptures right. out loud. Right. And those are prescriptive. They're not just descriptive right. like, hey, this time, you know what you right. should do with this particular letter? Right. It'd be really great. I've worked really hard. So <laughs> if you could just read this out loud, people are going to love to hear this. Yeah. It's going to be a crowd pleaser. I'm with you. I think your challenge is a clarion call to do this better, to work on this, or be, at least be more thoughtful about it and to consider how you are consuming the scriptures on the Lord's day in your own service and what your leaders are doing to make sure that it gets a plain and full reading. One of the things that always kind of bugs me, maybe this is like a weird pet peeve, is when you have a great pastor, well-intentioned, who has to say something like this, I'm going to read a large portion of scripture. I know it's long, so stick with me. And I think that's not an indictment against him. It's against us because 
what he's basically saying is, I know you're probably going to be impatient with this and you're going to be thinking, when will you just get to the thing that you want to say? But the thing that he wants to say is the scriptures. Right. That's the most important part. And of course, there is no sermon without the scripture itself. We can't just kind of just try to drop yourself in there. Uh, when you were talking about these kind of extra services and how oftentimes there's additional scripture read at them, one of the things that I thought of is I actually wonder if it's both what you said and what I'm about to say, which is actually slightly different, but more of a contrariety rather than probably a contradiction. And that is, Sometimes on those special services, let's take a Good Friday service, for example, given the nature of what's being celebrated there, what's being mourned and what's being appreciated, I actually wonder if sometimes the reason why more scripture gets read there is because the person putting together the service with the group of people feel it is necessary for people to actually get the full course of events that yeah. took place. Yeah. And that just having somebody explain them is like, here's a, here's like a deep cut reference for some people that might only get this if they're as fanatical about this. TV show as I am. It's a bit like Andy Dwyer from Parks and Rec doing all of his movie impersonations. And, and it's like, what we want is tell us the whole course of events. Right. Same thing with Christmas, like re read everything. I want to hear the whole thing. And the thing is, we should pull that into Hebrews or James right. or Leviticus or Exodus. Like it's okay. And maybe we just need to be better trained to sit in that and to appreciate it. I think sometimes, too, the Bible gives us, whether it's not necessarily prescriptive, but descriptive particulars around the reading of God's Word in the corporate setting can also be helpful in honing the skill. For instance, I love this, and I do not think this is prescriptive per se, but I do think it's helpful. I love it when in my church, we have a, one of the pastors in particular, when he preaches, he always reads the scripture first, and he asks people to stand. Yes. In honor of the fact that you're about to receive. So to your point, Tony, like there are things that we can do to help elevate in our minds the truth about the way the world really is, which is this is God's authoritative voice to us. And what a time to be alive that we can have it in almost any form possible right in front of us. And then to have it read to us. The reading is not the thing that's outdated. The thing that's actually weird is the fact that you have it in your personal little possession, in your hot little hands. That is weird. That, that's historically abnormal. Yes. Yeah. So what God has prescribed for us is that together, as we stand or sit shoulder to shoulder, as we look together in the same direction, that we would be processing the same words at the same time. And yet the beauty of this is the Holy Spirit, of course, is directing that word and that truth in particular ways at the same time while he's giving general, he's bringing forward this general understanding of specific revelation all into our lives that comes from a coordinated listening, not even a coordinated reading together. As if you know, I kind of follow along. It's a coordinated listening. And that's by design, in part because I think, especially in a day and age where everybody's so distracted, and sometimes you may be talking to somebody and they're reading something on their phone or on their computer, or they're listening to something else, and they think, no, 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 I'm listening to you. I can, I can handle the whole thing. This is a way, a push against all of that, as if to say, you are my people, and together I want you to listen to what I have to say in a way that's like focused and without distraction. And I think there is some real danger in losing that. There's definitely some real danger if we kind of chip away at that idea and just make it more casual or not necessary or doesn't have the kind of authority. I think that whatever we can do, practice of standing, of making it plain, of bringing in formal liturgy, all these things are good guide rails to help us make sure that the public reading of scripture is one, happening, and two, has its prominent and rightful place when we come to worship. Because... Worship through listening gets a bum rap, doesn't it? Like it gets undervalued. Yeah. 
as if yeah. like worshiping is something that we have to do and manifest actively either in voice or an expression of physical form or posture. But here, the simple act of being still, of being pointed in the direction that you're looking and of being quiet and of trying to focus your mind on what's being read is an amazing act of worship that again, gets undervalued because it seems so normal to almost be trite. And yet God says, this is what I'm going to use. This is the thing that I'm going to use to bring about a great transformation in your life on this particular Lord's day. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe just to close, think about it this way is we don't like to acknowledge the fact that most of Christian worship is passive. And what I mean by that is Christianity is by and large a religion that when properly understood is about receiving from God. Yes, exactly. That's not that's exactly. not to say that there are not expectations and that Christians should not be active in a certain sense, but in terms of what it is that God um what what it is that brings about our salvation, it is a passiveness. We receive from the Lord. And the the public reading of the word and the public preaching of the word I know we focus mostly on the reading in this episode, but I think this applies to the preaching of the word too. The reason the public reading of the word and the public preaching of the word are so central and then combined by the Westminster uh, divines with the conscionable hearing of the word, hearing is a passive, is a passive thing, right? When you hear something, it's because your body is being acted upon by outside forces. That's like by definition, what's going on with hearing is Vibrations in the air are causing your brain to perceive certain things. That's a really good picture of what it means to be a Christian, right? We, right. we receive from the Lord by means of the, the verbal revelation of God. The received word of God is written and then it's read to us. There is a place for private Bible reading. I, I don't think there's a, I don't think you can make a good argument from the New Testament stuff about the Bereans aside, there's, there's, I can talk about that some other time, but I don't think that you can make a great argument from the scriptures that there is a firm command to in your own private time, read the scriptures. And the the main reason I make that is because of a historical argument. That just wasn't a possibility. It wasn't a possibility for the people who the new Testament was written to. So why would we expect Paul to command people to do something that wasn't possible for them? That just doesn't make any sense. Instead, what the Bible commands is that we hear the word, we hear the preached word, and we hear the read word, and we receive that passively as part of the congregation. That doesn't mean that there isn't a response to it. That's true and valid and necessary. We are to respond to the word of God. But the primary first act of that is to receive it passively. So I think what you're saying of sit still, look forward, be ready to receive what God has in the written, in the the read and preached word of God. I think that is so, so important. And it's something that I know I don't do a good job of. I'll just throw myself out on the chopping block. I don't do a good job of it. I have a tendency to to check out when the scripture is being read. I have other responsibilities during the service. And if I'm really honest, a lot of times when the scripture is being read, my mind is getting ready for my next responsibility in the service. I'm reviewing the order of service in order to be ready for whatever my next responsibility is. That's something that God needs to work on. God is working on with me, right? He's That's a part of my sanctification that needs to get better. Yeah, right but on. I think all of us can fall into that 
that pitfall of using that red worship time, that red, uh, red scripture time as sort of like a mental stopgap to prepare for whatever comes next. Not realizing like that's what's next. That's the next thing that is confronting us is the red word of the publicly red word of God. Right. Yeah. I like that. I mean, there's, it's not as if we're saying, of course, there's a, an active part of listening and we're saying you should engage that. But I do think you're hundred percent right on that. There's this sense that we need to do something for God or that the, the extent to which the worship in our own lives that we'll measure when we leave was successful is how much we responded to it. Right. And the problem with that is all of that comes subsequent to the receiving. Yes. Because, and that's also why, you know, loved ones, there is a call to worship, which really should be out of the scriptures. Because before we can open our mouths to sing, if what you have to do is manufacture your own love for God and adoration for God in a morning when you really just don't feel like it, quite honestly, what you need is not somebody to be like, don't you feel good? Aren't you glad to be in the Lord's house today? Because in point of fact, you might not be, and it's okay to admit that you might not be feeling particularly great about being there. But the minute somebody comes in and says, we have something to worship this morning, our God is a mighty God who has an outstretched arm, who has snatched up and saved and called the people onto himself, given them his son, and then supplanted his Holy Spirit within them so that they might live unto righteousness. Well, now we have something to celebrate. Now yeah. we have something to worship. Now we have something to sing about. And so we desperately need to hear and receive first before we try to do anything else. Yeah. Well, Jesse, I think that's as good of a place to end it. Uh, so we're super excited about what's coming up in this series. I'm not going to tell you about it because then you you won't just, you'll have to turn in and find out. But uh, we're stoked about it. I think this is where we've turned the corner now into talking about, uh, you know, the practical outcomes and outflows of the theology we've talked about. Yes. So Jesse, I, I agree. until I agree. next yep. time, whoop. It's like a British show now. I'm 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 going to correct myself before we get some email. You probably noticed this, but I'm going to correct myself real quick. So as you joked about uh, the lack of preparation, here is where my own lack of preparation came right into this particular episode. So you dutifully put these on a calendar that we share. So if we schedule them and... um, I looked at the calendar description and it gets slightly cut off. I just saw, it just says like corporate worship, the public reading. And I just presumed, you know what comes after that? Public prayer. <laughs> so that's why at the beginning of this episode, I mentioned prayer because in my mind, I was like, yeah, these, that's, that's the jam right there. So okay. in case anybody's like, where was the prayer at? It was actually public reading and preaching. It's true. It's true. So It's coming up. That, well, Jesse, until that comes up and until next time, Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.